and welcome to the first ever Kairos Q&A. My name is Joshua Pfeiffer, your host of this podcast and YouTube channel. Thanks to those who submitted questions via email or uh, Facebook and other places. You're always welcome to send in any question you might like my take on. And uh, we'll get straight into it for today. I won't be able to get to all the questions that came through, but I've picked a few out and here we go. In the Lutheran Church, I often hear about eternity in heaven, but the Bible seems to indicate that a new earth will be our forever dwelling place with God. How does Lutheran eschatology play out in this area? That's a great question. By the way, if you hear anyone use the word eschatology, you know for sure they're some sort of a budding theologian. So good on you. Eschatology is just a fancy word for talking about the last things, the things of the future hope in the Christian faith. Sorry, the new heavens and the new earth. How do we think about this as Lutheran Christians in particular? The first thing you want to say about this, I think, is that whenever we're talking about eschatology, we're talking about last things and our future hope as Christians, we, we need to admit right up front that there is great mystery going on here. And so you remember that St. Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the mind of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. I take that as a very significant statement by the Apostle Paul that sort of hangs over as a bit of a, a banner all of these discussions to do with our future hope. What is in store for Christians in the future? That there is great mystery here. There are things that we cannot understand. And the Bible reveals to us different pictures, different images, different aspects of this truth insofar as we can receive them in this fallen world. I think that's important to remember right up front. Now, the question is about um, this tendency in the church throughout history, not just the Lutheran church, this, is a, this has been a, a tendency right across Christendom as far as I can tell, the tendency to talk about basically that we die and we go to heaven and that this heaven is sort of some disembodied um, place where maybe we, we sort of float around as, as spirits or, or something like that. That's the sort of picture that people often have of our future hope as Christians. And it's true, I think, I'm very sympathetic to the critique, if you like, that this is perhaps not the most helpful way for Christians to speak about it, um, and it doesn't really line up with the, the big emphasis in the Scripture. And so you do get this emphasis in the Scripture on um, a restored creation as being not only an aspect of eschatology, but really the goal in many ways of, of where this universe is heading um, in relation to, to God. You get talk of the new heavens and the new earth, as this questioner, questioner is making reference to. This is also very closely connected with um, our belief in the resurrection of the body. And so if we have no place for a bodily resurrection in our eschatology and how we think about the future as Christian people, then something has gone askew. Now, at the same time, I think we can go too far in this critique um, because we do need to look at the scriptures and see that there are all sorts of different ways of talking about our future with God. And so Jesus himself does talk about laying up treasure in heaven. Paul talks about being citizens of heaven. 
Um, Jesus talks often about the kingdom of heaven, of course. So, so the issue is not necessarily um, whether we use the language of new heaven and new earth or heaven as a sort of shorthand way of speaking about our future with God, which I think is basically um, what people have done often in the past. Heaven is sort of shorthand language for all that the Bible teaches us about our future dwelling with God. The issue is not, to my mind, so much about exactly the language we use, but what is included in all of that. And it's true that included in that vision of our future with God needs to be some something of the restored creation. This is a good creation that God gave us, and He is going to restore it, to make all things new. And we will be raised bodily from the dead to participate in this when Christ comes again. Now, the other thing worth mentioning is that I did come across uh, a Luther quote on this. This is one of my volumes of uh, Luther's works here. It's mainly used for um, straightening my Boeing bookshelves out behind me, but occasionally um, gets taken off and read as well. And um, it's interesting, this language of the new heaven and the new earth Luther is commenting on here, actually in connection with 1 Corinthians 15. You know, this is, of course, um, the great chapter on the resurrection. And um, Luther does seem to, to take that promise quite literally. And so it's worth paying attention to what he says here as well. He says, since it's very apparent here, he's talking about this life, that bodily food and drink do not suffice if God does not give his blessing, what will happen there, he's talking about the world to come, when God reveals himself? There we will not, not look at bread and wine, we will neither need nor desire apothecary or medication, doctors and that sort of thing, but we will have sufficient solely from viewing and looking at God. It's worth noticing that that's really the centre of our future hope as Christian people, is viewing and looking at God, being in the presence of God. That's at the heart of all of the images. This will, But then notice what Luther goes on to say from that. This will make the whole body so beautiful, vigorous and healthy, indeed so light and agile, that we will soar along like a little spark, yes, just like the sun which runs its course in the heavens. In a moment, we will be down here on earth or up above in the heavens. Indeed, I believe that everything will become much more beautiful, water, trees and grass, and that there will be a new earth, as St. Peter says, which will be a delight to behold. It's worth paying attention to what Luther says. As Lutheran Christians, we don't take everything Luther says as immediately authoritative, but we certainly look to his exegesis and the tradition that comes out of it as a very important part of how we as Lutheran Christians think about these things. And so for what it's worth, there's that quote from Luther. Okay, our next question. Can a baptized Christian lose their salvation? If so, how? Yeah, this is a question that um, does come up uh, a bit, and I've noticed that it comes up in particular on the internet for some reason. You find this question getting around a lot, actually. Um, and that, that made me think a bit more about this, because this question does come up in personal interactions as well, in congregational life and with, with Christians. Um, but it's a sort of question that if I encounter it from someone with whom I'm sitting um, in my office or, or somewhere else in the flesh, 
um, it's the sort of question that I'm actually very cautious to answer on face value. Because it seems to me that almost always when people are asking this sort of question, it's not a theoretical issue. There's something very personal, something very close to them that is the reason they're asking. And they frame the question this way, something like this, can a baptized Christian lose their salvation? If so, how? So there's all sorts of reasons that this issue might come up. It might, it might come up because somebody has just attended a funeral of someone who's committed suicide, for example, one of those great tragedies, and this person was an active Christian, and they're actually thinking, how do I make sense of that? Or it may be that this person is thinking about something that's happened to them in their own life, or some grievous sin that they themselves have committed, or maybe even are considering committing, that happens too, and actually the question is about something very specific like that. And so in conversation with people around this, I'm very cautious to give a, a quick answer myself. Now, having said all that, just as it stands on face value, the basic answer to this question from a Lutheran perspective is yes, a Christian can lose their salvation. And, and this is different from some other streams of Christianity that some of you are aware, or aware of, where they do teach different things about the perseverance of the saints and the irresistible grace of God and these sorts of things, which often either explicitly teach or certainly give the impression that a, a Christian could never lose their salvation. Luther is basically saying, no, you can lose it. And we basically get this from the repeated warnings in the New Testament. The warnings like when St. Paul talks about um, take care of your standing lest you fall and various other places where Christians seem to be being explicitly warned against falling away from the faith. Presumably, these warnings are there for a reason, and Christians need to hear them. Now, the reason that this question can be tricky is that there are, of course, other verses of the Bible which present to us wonderful promises of persevering in the faith. And so you think of Jesus saying that no one will snatch those sheep out of his Father's hand. And you think of Paul speaking about nothing in all creation being able to ever separate us from the love of Christ. You do get these tremendous promises given to the people of God, and you also have these warnings about the possibility of falling away. They're both there. And that again, I think, is why it's important to know why is someone asking this question. And that's something that can only really be dealt with in personal conversation. Now the second part of this question is how then, okay? So can a baptized Christian lose their salvation? If so, how? And the basic answer to that from a Lutheran perspective is um, you, you can lose your salvation by willingly um, continuing in, in un, unrepentance um, and, and gross sin, basically by refusing God's grace, you could say. And one of the things that sits behind this is that Lutherans understand the gift of salvation and basically all of God's spiritual gifts, all of God's heavenly blessings to us. We understand them not so much as things which you can sort of get and put in your pocket and then you've got them, but we understand that these are gifts which need to be continually given by God and continually received by the people of God. And so in that sense, 
salvation is not something which we sort of receive once we've got it in our pocket and that's it, but it's something which we receive again and again as, as we receive the forgiveness of sins, as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as God continues to work in us. And so if at some point in their life somebody says, look God, I don't want that anymore, I reject that, I refuse that, and I intend to persist in this attitude until the day I die, then we would say, yes, this person can lose their salvation. God is not going to force himself on this person. That's basically it. Oh, one last thing on that. Um, this, this question I find is connected to that verse about the, um, um, the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. And one of the pieces of pastoral wisdom, which I think is, is, comes out of a sound exegesis of these sorts of texts, is that um, people who are in danger of losing their salvation are not normally the ones asking these sorts of questions. And people who are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit are not usually the ones asking whether they have done it or not. This is to do with intentional, ongoing, persistent refusal of the grace of God, refusal of what God wants to give. So basically, I think if you're worried about this for yourself, the very fact you're asking that question is pretty good evidence. You've got nothing to worry about. I hope that doesn't sound too flippant, but I think there's something to it. Okay, on to another question. Is it okay for Christians to be wealthy? Another good question. I think if I had to give a short answer, the answer is yes, it's okay. But it is worth thinking very seriously about how much wealth is actually spiritually healthy for you, for us as Christian people. Now, the reason I say yes initially is because there are, of course, figures in the early church, even in the New Testament itself, in the book of Acts, and um, as, as Paul is on his missionary journeys, there are people who have um, houses, and it seems like large enough houses to accommodate um, large groups of Christians, and so presumably this points to a certain amount of wealth. It, it, it just, and there's other verses in the New Testament where you can sort of piece together the fact that um, there were Christians in the early church who were wealthy and they don't seem to be condemned it's just there and this has been the way through um, Christian history that Christians seem to people seem to become Christians from every strata of society from every demographic rich and poor um, and of course in the New Testament wealth itself it is never condemned explicitly either you know Paul warns against the love of money but he doesn't his warning is not that the, that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money. Um, and Jesus does talk a lot about money and possessions, wealth, and, and uses the term mammon often. But his main warning is about not laying up treasures on earth in a sense that you serve this as a master. He says you cannot serve two masters. But as far as I can see, he doesn't condemn wealth in itself. I think that's a hard case to make. Now, having said, yes, that it's okay for Christians to be wealthy, as I said, it's worth thinking more deeply about this because there are a lot of warnings, a lot of cautions right through the Bible, right through the Gospels and the Epistles, which seem to suggest that there is something about wealth which is a particularly powerful false god, if you like. 
there is something about it that does compete for our devotion, our faith, um, perhaps more than other things. As you just read through the New Testament and just note how many times this comes up as an issue and you think, well, there's definitely some point being made here. Um, it's often a problem with the false teachers in the early church too. One of the ways you know is that they're greedy for money and they come asking for money and all these sorts of things. I also wonder too, um, I've never done the research on this, but I've sort of um, put this out there to people before as a um, as a something that just sort of feels about right to me. In the West, or let's say just in Australia to make it simpler where I am, if you had a chart and it had a line going up from a cert from you know in um, chronological and it was going chronologically and it had a line going up about the average wealth of um, people gradually increasing as living standards have have increased in our country and, and all this sort of thing. Um, I do wonder whether there would be a corresponding line, almost a mirror image going down as to people's, um, people actively practicing the Christian faith. There does seem to be something going on there that's really worth paying attention to. But again, biblically there doesn't seem to be, wealth itself does not seem to be the problem but our attitude towards it, how we use it. And so I know many faithful Christian people who have been and are very wealthy, wealthy beyond anything I really knew was possible um, in my own life growing up. And it's, it's quite amazing to me, but their wealth does seem to have found its right place um, within their lives, and they use it for the glory of God, they use it for the good of God's people and the spread of his gospel. Um, they don't seem particularly attached to it, they just have a lot of it for whatever reason. Um, and I know many others at the same time for whom um, wealth has become a stumbling block in their Christian faith. So there's a few thoughts for what it's worth. Okay, let's come on to another question. How are we to be led by the Spirit and to discern when God is specifically trying to communicate with us in our daily lives moment to moment? Obviously, no one reads the Bible, goes to church, prays, etc. 24 hours, 7 days a week. So some guidance with this question would be great. Another great question. For Thanks for sending that one in. How are we to be led by the Spirit? The first thing I'd like to say about this is that I think when we have these phrases from the Bible, it's important to... It, we need to be careful about taking a... Hearing that phrase and we get a preconceived idea in our mind as to what that means... And then we take that as being obviously what it does mean, and then we start to build on things from that. So this question sort of seems to presuppose that being led by the Spirit, it automatically means something. And it means something like that the Spirit will be um, prompting us, even speaking audibly to us, or leading us in very tangible ways, supernaturally, if you like, from moment to moment. And I can see how you get to that sort of understanding from the phrase led by the Spirit. But what's interesting is to go back to the passage and actually, or the passages where that phrase is used and see what it actually says because it's a bit surprising to be honest. And I don't think that that phrase being led by the Spirit is being used in the way that a lot of modern people, modern Christians, tend to use it. I'll just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So one of the places that that phrase is used is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 12 to 17 is the, is the sort of section. And um, 
I'll read it to you now, actually. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So what's interesting to me is that right in the middle of this passage, you have this phrase about being led by the Spirit. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. But if you had to look in the context in this passage and say, okay, what does that actually mean? What is being led by the Spirit connected to in this passage? It's a bit surprising. Because I think you could say, okay, there's three things that, that I can see immediately, none of which um, are the sort of things that people normally think of. So the first one is that being led by the Spirit here is connected to putting to death the deeds of the body. And this is very similar in Galatians 5, I think it is, or Galatians 6, where the phrase is also used. So there's these um, temptations, these bodily temptations that we have and that we act on. And, and when these are not in accord with God's will, these are sins. And St. Paul says you need to put these to death as Christian people. And this is a long discussion as to what that means. But at the very least, it means confessing these sins, asking for God's forgiveness and making attempts to turn away from these things and to, and to form other habits in our Christian life. And Paul says here that doing all of that is one way that we are being led by the Spirit. Now the second thing he talks about here is just prayer, crying out to Abba, Father. So one of the things that being led by the Spirit means is simply praying, calling out to God, calling out to God especially as Father, because we have this spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters, children of God. And then, even more interesting for to my mind, is the fact that at the end of this passage, what's connected with being led by the Spirit is suffering. This is very strange, very mysterious. But it seems to be saying that one of the things being led by the Spirit means is that we will face suffering in life as Christian people. Now I won't say a whole lot more about it right now, but just to point that out to you, that when you actually look at the phrase being led by the Spirit in its context in the New Testament, how that comes up, there's a fair few surprises as to what this may actually look like. And it seems to me there's not a lot of teaching at all about the picture of the Spirit somehow communicating to us moment by moment, giving us promptings working by uh, spiritual intuitions and these sorts of things to guide us through the day. Now, another thing that's connected here is how the Spirit does speak. And certainly in the Lutheran tradition, we have always wanted to keep the emphasis on the Spirit's speaking through the Word of God, through the Word of God recorded to us in the Scriptures, through the Word of God preached by pastors in the church, the Word of God shared orally by one Christian to another, that this is how the Spirit primarily speaks to us. 
Now, I've certainly had all sorts of strange experiences in my life, and I've heard far more strange experiences in my life of people who do seem to, um, where God does seem to communicate in other ways, surprising ways, through other people and through promptings and feelings and all these sorts of things. There's all sorts of strange stuff that goes on, right? But I think we still need to keep at the center that God promises to speak by His Spirit through His Word. I think when that's at the center, when someone is soaked in Scripture, when someone is attending worship regularly and hearing the Word of God, receiving the Word of God, then I'm perhaps more open to other things going on around the margins, if you like. However, when that core is not there, I myself am very cautious, very suspicious when someone claims to be being led by the Spirit or hearing from the Spirit in um, more direct sorts of ways. I think the other thing to note here is that there is a need for maturing in faith and for growth and for discernment in the things, the decisions we have to make day by day that does come with time. So often these sorts of questions can come from new Christians or young Christians who um, are really yearning for, for strong guidance in their everyday life. What does my newfound Christian faith mean day to day, moment by moment, and all these, these decisions I have to make? And it would be nice if God could give me a, a little tip right or left, this way or that way. Yeah, check that box, don't check that box. Now, I don't think that's what God does for us, but instead what he does is he gradually matures and grows us in our faith and he helps us to begin to discern what his will is. And those of you who know your scriptures well will know that I'm sort of getting this from Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. You can go and look it up there, how Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind and learning to discern what is the will of God. Now, the implication there seems to be that it's not always clear and that the Spirit is not always going to lead you in a direct, obvious way, but there is this need to discern which way to go, right? Now, just before we finish up on this question, I, I want to recommend a book um, which I found quite helpful on these sorts of questions. And I can't find my copy. I don't know where it is, otherwise I would have put it up here for you. But the book is called Good News for Anxious Christians. 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do by Philip Carey. I really recommend that you read this book. And I'm just going to give you the first four chapter titles and subtitles and you'll get a bit of a, a flavor for what he's trying to do in this book. Chapter 1. Why You Don't Have to Hear God's Voice in Your Heart or How God Really Speaks Today. Chapter 2. Why You Don't Have to Believe Your Intuitions Are the Holy Spirit or how the Spirit shapes our hearts. Chapter 3, why you don't have to quote, let God take control, or how obedience is for responsible adults. And number four, why you don't have to find God's will for your life, or how faith seeks wisdom. That just gives you a bit of a flavor for, for what he's trying to get at. If that, if that stimulates your curiosity, please do look at this book, Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. Okay, next question. Can you shed light on the doctrine of justification? Um, as a Lutheran seminarian, training to be a Lutheran pastor, you rightly learn a lot about justification. It was at the 
core of the Reformation. It's one of the most important legacies of the Lutheran tradition within the wider Christian church, I would suggest. Um, justification has also come under some criticism in some um, quarters, uh, particularly the emphasis on it. Um, and I picked up a bit of this in seminary too, reading around, and because justification um, does seem to be basically a forensic picture, image, to do with like a legal type um, picture, if you like. Um, and it, it is to do with guilt and forgiveness. And so the critique might be that um, the Lutheran tradition, and some people would say even the Apostle Paul himself, was too hung up on this way of talking about God's work in Christ and that um, it needs to be brought and we need to see it in a new light and, and all this sort of thing. I remember hearing about this um, when I was at college training to be a pastor and I was thinking I was even doing an assignment on justification at the time and I was driving down the street and I pulled up behind this car and there on the back window was this huge sticker right across the back and it said, justify your existence. And I thought, wow. Anyone who thinks that this doctrine does not apply to modern people, I think is off track. That sticker just got me thinking about all the ways in which modern people do feel the need to be justified, to be in the right to even justify your very existence. Now that question, that sticker is just very interesting because you think, well, justify your existence to who? You know, to the world, to people around you, to, to reality itself, to, to something out there, to God. And, and notice how that sticker puts the emphasis very much on you. You've got to do this. Now, justification in the Bible the emphasis is very much on the fact that we cannot do this ourselves. That justification before God is a gift of God's grace received in faith because of what Christ Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection. Now, where is this language used? So the language of justification is used by Jesus in the Gospels. Um, you think of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And Jesus says that the tax collector, the one who was asking for mercy, um, if you look at the translation there, it's interesting. It could even be the one who was looking for an atoning sacrifice, that that one goes home justified, Jesus says, rather than the tax collector who was parading all of his good works before God. The language comes up in the Apostle Paul in a big way, um, in the book of Romans famously, that we're justified by his grace as a gift through redemption in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And the word justification is related to the word for righteousness. The basic imagery seems to be um, forensic or legal. Um, in modern terms, we might think of a courtroom sort of image. And the issue is, how is a person declared to be in the right according to the law of this, this court before the judge? How is a person justified? Um, now, scriptures don't really flesh out this imagery, if you like, but they sort of take it for granted. And the big emphasis is how that happens. So is it something that we can do? The scriptures say no. It is something that God does for us by God's grace in Christ. Um, because of Christ and what he does, God declares us to be in the right before him. He justifies us by his grace and we receive that uh, gift by faith, trusting in it. Okay, so that's justification. 
Now, last question for today, a very practical one. A person writes, I have a friend who is looking at becoming Lutheran. However, she's in an area without a confessional Lutheran church. What can I suggest for her? Now, this is actually a difficult question. I feel for you. Okay, uh, um, this happens more often than you would think that people through a variety of influences and this happens particularly with all the stuff we have online these days that um, people are on this journey of, of the finding out what the Reformation and particularly the Lutheran Reformation is all about and they come to convictions about the Lutheran confession of the Christian faith and they try to find a local church that sort of lines up with this and they come crashing down to earth. What do you do then, right? Um, one of the things that I'd ask is what does area mean, right? It could be that there's um, this person is hundreds and hundreds of kilometres away from um, the sort of Lutheran church that they're looking for, but it could be that it's not actually at that far. And it is worth noting that around the world, people often do travel great distances to get to um, church. I remember my own grandparents out on the farm, you know, they travelled quite a way to get to church and it was a big priority for them um, each week. Now, I'm not saying that's the particular situation of this person. It may be that's just impossible. Um, but another consideration, just to th throw this in a bit left field, is that um, I, I, do, I have heard of people that have moved and one of the big motivations has been um, to be near a church which confesses Christ clearly, which confesses and teaches what the scriptures teach. Um, again, I'm not saying this is a possibility in this particular circumstance. There's all sorts of considerations, financial and family and all of that. Um, but I sometimes tell that story, those stories to people just to just for shock value a little bit to think, wow, um, for some people this is so important that they actually take it into consideration as to where they live, right? Um, one of the other things I'd say is that the question does make note of um, there's not a confessional Lutheran church in their area. So they're looking for, in their mind, they've got a particular style of Lutheran church. And so it it's maybe the case that there is a Lutheran church nearby, um, but that there's something going on at that church um, which this person... Um, finds unpalatable or just can't go along with for whatever reason. So what, what what's the scenario when that happens? Well, I think it is worth thinking a bit more about that. Again, without knowing the details, it's hard to say. But um, I'd encourage people to be a little bit careful about writing congregations off because um, there is a difference between congregations being basically let's say heterodox, to use the technical language, having departed from um, what the scriptures teach, what the Lutheran confessions teach. This does happen in church bodies and congregations, no doubt about it. But there is a difference between that, and if that's happening, I couldn't encourage in good conscience to go along somewhere like that. But there's a difference between that and congregations which maybe have quirky pastors, um, which maybe have um, customs and habits as a congregation which have crept in, which are um, you know, just strange or not ideal, you know, it, it, it might be a bit of a stretch to say they're wrong or they're completely against um, scriptural teaching, but they're just, they're just there and they're a bit odd, right? I think it's important to distinguish between those two things because if a congregation has some strange customs, some strange people, a strange pastor, 
Um, if it's worship is you know not to your taste or you think is just not helpful for Christian um, life, but it is a congregation which um, publicly teaches what the scriptures teach, what the Lutheran confessions teach, um, that this is its official public confession. You really have to, in some ways, take that on face value and you can go along there and you can try and be an influence in returning perhaps some of the congregational life back to what it could be, is one way to think about it. I also just want to offer a caution here that it does happen in this day and age that people end up becoming sort of internet Christians. And I just want to say that I think that is a very bad path to go down. What I mean is that people don't belong to a local church, a local congregation, and they get all of their spiritual nourishment online through the sorts of things we're doing today. Um, I think I don't think that's an option. So I don't quite know how all this works out in practice because I don't know what church communities are available locally to this person, but just let me say fundamentally that Christians need to belong to a local church. They need to be at worship regularly with other Christians in the flesh. It's just not an option to be floating out there in internet land trying to live the Christian faith that way. It's just not an option. Okay, so that's our first Kairos Q&A. Thanks for being with us today on YouTube or the podcast. And uh, do hit that subscribe button, like this uh, video, and leave a review of the podcast uh, if you've enjoyed it. And look forward to seeing you next time. Keep those questions coming. God bless you.